0: Mark chapter 9, reading verses 38 to 42. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, Whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we need your Holy Spirit to guide us and to teach us, to lead us into all truth. Especially, Father, because uh, we recognize that there is so much that uh, we do not understand of your ways. And so much of what Scripture teaches is absolutely contrary to what the world is like and what we are innately like because of Adam's fall. Father, what we are by nature must undergo uh, the greatest renovation by the work of Christ and by your Holy Spirit in order for us to truly receive the things that come from you. And so we pray for the continued work of your Holy Spirit, that having regenerated us and have illuminated our hearts and minds and enabled us to believe in you, that you would keep working in us, not only to will and to do your good pleasure, but to believe the things we must believe, so that we might be fed by your word, strengthened by your grace, and live lives that are worthy of the Lord who bought us with his blood. We would pray this, Father, so that we might be faithful witnesses, that we might be salt and light to this generation. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, we just jump into a passage as we go week by week by week, and so sometimes it's important for us to remind ourselves what is the actual context in which this passage occurs. Well, remember that we're... we're, We're coming to Capernaum again after Jesus and the disciples have have been up towards Caesarea Philippi. Uh, Peter has made the great confession of who Jesus is. Peter, James, and John have gone up upon the mountain, have seen Christ transfigured. They've come back down. There's the failure of the disciples, the remaining nine disciples to help the father who has the demon-possessed son. And and then after Jesus uh, rectifies that situation and, and basically says this, Kind only comes out because of prayer. Pointing out that the disciples should have been in prayer rather than arguing with the scribes. All of those things that we've talked about. All of those things that are going on. Then we have the journey back to Capernaum. And and on the journey back, the disciples not only don't understand what Jesus is talking about when he points his message toward the end of his life, suffering, being betrayed, being crucified, then rising from the dead... But the immediate context is they've just had this truly argumentative session, apart from Jesus, where they're basically challenging each other, who is the greatest, in essence, next to Jesus? Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Who's the greatest even then? It's a very sad situation, and Jesus confronts that. We saw last week that the manner of his confrontation is is very instructional, clearly with a lot of grace. Uh, he modeled exactly what Paul says later about the Lord's servant must be able to correct those who are in error, but to do it gently, if perchance, King James, if perchance, per venture, God will grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may escape the snare of the devil who's held them captive to do his will. So that's, that's the context. But that continues. Don't let the divisions in your translation confuse you. Apparently, the narrative or the story continues in terms of what Jesus is saying. So John has this thought. They've been properly chastised. They need to be humble. Servant leadership is, in fact, the only kind of leadership that Jesus is going to allow within his kingdom, ultimately. Now, it causes John to think about the fact that, well, he and the other disciples had actually rebuked a guy who was casting out demons in the name of Jesus. So that's the context. That's what starts these several verses here in terms of what Jesus is going to say. Now, the context then gives us a, a sense of where Jesus is going with this and what we should understand. It's really about spiritual discernment. It's about the responsibility of those that Jesus is training with respect to gospel leadership the disciples who will be the apostles. It's about the fact that they need to have a kind of, of discernment within the context of their spiritual leadership because they are going to be responsible for guiding and guarding the people of God. Now, when you when you look at the verses that we've just read, in that sense, there are three principles that stand out that I want us to recognize. That, that spiritual leadership, is going to recognize, first of all, the ministry of discernment will recognize, first of all, there is no middle ground between Christ and Antichrist. There is no middle ground between Christ and Antichrist. That'll be the first thing that we're going to focus on. Uh, Then secondly, though, uh, uh, what Jesus says here is going to also say to the disciples who are going to become the leaders of the church, they must exercise what is nothing less than uh, the judgment of charity with respect to others who name the name of Christ. But then thirdly, in terms of uh, discernment that leaders must uh, exercise as they guide and guard the people of God, there are limits to what that charitable judgment looks like. So that's what we're going to be considering. No middle ground, charitable judgments, limits on charitable judgments. And again, Jesus is is training his disciples uh, in these words here for what they're not ready to take on at that point. They're clearly not ready to guide and to guard the people of God yet. But after Pentecost, when the fullness of the Spirit baptizes them and, and they begin that ministry, these principles become increasingly important as the early church begins to grow and spread. Now, first principle, this ministry of discernment. The fact that there's no middle ground between Christ and Antichrist. Now, so you take the story that we're talking about here. uh, It would be easy to to get too fixated on who this guy is that's casting out demons in the name of Jesus. He's clearly not part of the Twelve. He's not even part of the... The 70, the disciples don't know him, so it raises the question, you know, who is this guy? But, but let's not focus on that yet. What we need to focus on is the larger point of what Jesus says and, and this larger point that he makes about the gospel. Christ is teaching us that the gospel message always presents an either-or. Either people are for Jesus or they are against Jesus with no third possibility, no middle ground. And that's the meaning of verse 40. Uh, Jesus says, The one who is not against us is for us. Now, to properly understand that statement, we have to consider a similar statement that Jesus makes in the Gospel of Matthew. Probably something that Jesus said in several different ways, probably any number of times, during the time that he was training the disciples but in Matthew 12:30 this is what he says whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not scatter with me whoever whoever does not gather with me scatters again no middle ground there are two and only two positions with respect to Jesus either for Christ or against Christ for Christ or Antichrist. that's it. no neutrality. Now Peter said as much himself after Pentecost uh, after he was first arrested. Uh, perhaps you remember the story in, in Acts chapter 4. Uh, Peter and John get arrested, they're kept overnight, The next day they're arraigned before the Sanhedrin court. They're commanded to stop preaching. And what Peter says in Acts 4 is this. This Jesus is the stone that you builders have rejected. He has become the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is Jesus or nothing at all. Middle ground doesn't exist. Now, of course, what that means then in terms of, of the message of the gospel is it divides the entire human race into two and only two classes of people. Those for Jesus those against Jesus. Those saved by his name, those who are lost. Those redeemed by his blood, those who reject him. Those who trust in Christ, or those who trust in their own works. Those God declares righteous for the sake of Christ, or those God declares wicked at the bar of his justice. Those who follow the true path, the true path of faith or those who follow false religions and philosophies. Those who receive and believe the truth or those who have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Now, this is the first, primary, most basic, most fundamental implication of what Jesus says. Now, it's a very direct application of the gospel message. When the gospel message goes forth, it creates two and only two classes of people, either for Christ or antichrist. Now, what's interesting is Paul's application of this. Uh, it would be easy to go in the direction of looking at the culture. It would be easy to apply it to those inside, those outside, and all of that. But Paul addresses this no-middle-ground perspective with respect to the church. He's concerned about what's going on inside the church. And so this is what he says in his Corinthian letter, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. He's speaking to believers. He's applying the either-or. He's applying the gospel message to the fact that there's no middle ground. And so here's what he says. "'Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. "'For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? "'What fellowship has light with darkness? "'What accord has Christ with Belial? "'What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? "'What agreement has the temple of God with idols?' This is Paul's declaration that there is no middle ground. Either we totally belong to Christ or we don't. Now then Paul continues with this application. He says, For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Here's Paul's application then of the either or. He says, Since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So the Apostle is saying that this this either-or of the Gospel, the fact that there's no middle ground with Jesus, has its definite trajectory in the lives of believers so that they would recognize the calling to live a godly life. The calling to live a life that's separated from the world the calling to live a life in in the fear of God and in the holiness that God wants us to live up to. Now, the reason this is so goes back to the gospel. The gospel that Jesus lived, died, raised from the dead to bring to us. The gospel of the apostles is that the very work of Christ on the cross, which paid the penalty for our sin, continues as the basis of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So that the Holy Spirit applies to us the the, the ransom, the expiation, the propitiation, the reconciliation of the work of Christ to us in our lives enabling us by the Spirit of God to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. What Christ has done for us judicially, He also continues to do with us in the spirit of sanctification, the spirit of holiness, so that we die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Or in other words, justification is the ground of our salvation. And sanctification becomes increasingly what demonstrates that we are justified by God. What is the justifying work of Christ shows up as the evidentiary work of the Spirit. God has declared us righteous in Christ, but He continues to work with us to will and to do His good pleasure. We can't live the Christian life apart from Jesus. But if we are Christians, we will keep seeking to live the Christian life in fellowship with Jesus. That's what Paul's talking about. That's the either-or. If we've truly died unto sin, Paul says, how can we then still live in it? Romans 6.1. It's easy to think of the either-or and to only think of the fact that we're in and they're out. But the power of the gospel in terms of the either-or declares to us that all who have been justified by his grace and saved through faith are those who desire to live unto Jesus Christ. Now, the second principle of discernment is charitable judgment. Uh, While there are only two categories... What Jesus teaches his disciples here is that we must not be too quick about the judgments we make about others. While there's only two sorts of people, those who are for Christ, those who are against Christ, the disciples are instructed to recognize that followers of Jesus, true followers, may show up even outside of the ministry that's based and grounded in the apostles. Now, that's the the situation that's current in the text. Verse 38, uh, John reports to Jesus, uh, Look, uh, we found this guy who was casting out demons in your name, and, and we tried to stop him. He was someone the disciples didn't know. And therefore, they thought that because we don't know this guy, he isn't properly credentialed to be doing anything in the name of Jesus. But we need to remember, vast multitudes of Jewish people had seen Jesus, sat under his teaching. Numbers and numbers of people had experienced his healing power, witnessed him casting out demons, we must assume that there were, in fact, believers who were outside of the Twelve, outside of the Seventy, who uh, could follow Jesus in terms of his itinerant ministry. We have to believe that there were people who couldn't leave their professions and jobs and homes and so forth, but who were truly believing that this was God's Son. And so the response of Jesus was to correct John, to correct the disciples, and to encourage them to treat those who appear to be on the side of Jesus as co-laborers, not as some kind of threat to the work of the kingdom. And that's the point of both verse 39 and 41. Uh, Jesus is basically saying this. "It It is highly unlikely that someone who's laboring hard in the name of Jesus will do a sudden 180-degree about-face turn, and then to begin speak, speaking evil of Christ. And further, even those who only do a small thing, a very small thing for the cause of Christ, are not going to lose their reward. Now, the point is, in terms of spiritual leadership, in terms of guiding and guarding the people of God, exercising discernment, Jesus is encouraging the disciples to have a charitable judgment toward those who seem to have a sincere commitment to Jesus. Now, we actually see this lived out in an extraordinary fashion in the life of the Apostle Paul. When Paul was in Rome, in prison, when he wrote to the Philippians, he talked about the fact that that he was of course, preaching Christ from prison. Others were preaching Christ. And and what he says is some indeed preach Christ from envy and, and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Uh, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely but thinking to afflict me in my pun- in my imprisonment what then only that in every way whether in pretense or in truth christ is proclaimed and in that i rejoice now paul is making the point that god uses people for the furtherance of his kingdom even when they don't have all of the right motives Everyone that has ever that everyone. Let me stop. Let me back up. Think about what Paul has said. Think about the fact, the reality of this. Paul is 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 happy before God that God is using people, even when their motives aren't right. Okay. And then stop and realize that if God has used you ever. You have never had perfectly right motives either. If if God has used people whose theology isn't the theology of the Reformation, and He has, remember that God has used you and your theology has never been perfect. My theology isn't perfect. I know that theoretically. (laughs) You can can point it out to me if you see it. (laughs) If I saw it, I wouldn't be preaching it, right? But the point is is that because of this, Jesus is encouraging, Paul is encouraging likewise, a kind of charitable judgment toward those who are preaching the name of Jesus, at least preaching a faithful Jesus to, to those who need to hear it. Now, the reason why this is critical is important, especially within our kind of circles as Reformed Christians. The the importance is this. We too easily, too easily disenfranchise from, from Christianity those that we, we think just haven't gotten the theology where it needs to be. Now, I understand and, 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 and have no disagreements with the great concerns that the Reformers, and even today, that we have with the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church. I have no problems with the fact that, that that's messed up. <laughs> that uh, uh, saying that the Pope is the vicar of Christ and that he dispenses grace... And in all the kinds of things we find going on in Roman Catholic theology, I have no problems with us recognizing in discernment that there's so much there that is just absolutely not right. But I've met any number of Catholic believers at the lay level that when you ask them point blank, who is your Redeemer and who has saved you, uh, they're not singing some Beatles song that, you know, Mother Mary comes to me. They're basically looking back and saying, well, Jesus, of course. And and what's your hope for heaven? And I've heard them say, well, it's Jesus. So I, I I have met and found true Christian believers within the Roman Catholic Church. Now, can't say that for the priesthood. Can't say that for the bishops and cardinals. But you and I have probably met sincere Christians who were Roman Catholic in their practice and profession and Greek Orthodox. And of course, those who follow John Wesley, and, and, and that kind of, and Lutherans, and so forth. I mean, we, we've got to recognize that that in terms of who God is saving through the power and the name of Jesus, uh, the Reformed world does not have a unique blessing with respect to God and people coming into His kingdom. Now, that's to encourage us to have a judgment of charity. Question then though is, are there limits to that judgment of charity? And the last principle this morning is discernment in terms of of that kind of recognition that there is a limitation in terms of that judgment. I I want us to note what Jesus didn't say to John. Uh, Look at what he said, verse 38, look at 39. Look at what he didn't say. Jesus did not say to John, hey, don't stop anybody who has a religious message. Right? Jesus wasn't saying, no matter what they say, let them speak. No matter what they say, let them, let them do their work. That's not the position of Christ. The judgment of charity is not that wide. The person of interest that John was mentioning was doing what he was doing, in the name and the authority of Christ. So, where do we draw the line? Uh, Do we even draw a line? How generous is the judgment of charity? Christ is saying to the disciples, are you supposed to accept anyone and everyone who names the name of Christ? Because that becomes the big question. The answer is no. We, we know from the ministry of the apostles, we know from the rest of Scripture that Jesus would never endorse the idea except anyone and everyone who spouts the name Jesus, who spouts the name of Christ to authenticate what they're doing. You know, look, um, the most fashionable trend today and I uh, hope to God it's a trend, is identity politics. Uh, the influence is so strong in the political field. It's it's so strong in terms of legislators writing laws. Uh, it's there pervasively on college campuses. The, the, the idea that self-identification becomes self-authentication. If I call myself this, I am this. We know it's happening. Uh, We know that it's in the school systems. We know that we even have doctors and social workers strangely promoting the idea that if a four-year-old boy thinks he's a girl, then we ought to do everything to accommodate that. Identity, politics, pervasively hitting our culture. The Christian subculture is being affected by it, too. Now, there's a history in which Christians were always unwilling to call somebody on Christian identity. Growing up, when I was in college, again and again, I would hear people say, well, he says he's a Christian. I said, well, what does that mean? Does he love Jesus? Does he go to church? Does he fellowship? Does he pray? Does he, does he seek to live godly for Christ? No, 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 no. But he says he's a Christian. Well, it's worse today because 40-some years ago, you could challenge a person and say, I don't think you're a Christian because a Christian is this, 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 and this. But today, if you say to someone, I don't think you're a Christian, the person will say, who are you to say that I'm not? I am what I say I am. That's that's what we're up against today. And the Christian subculture has bought it in so many ways. You have all sorts of people speaking out as though they were the voice of Jesus because they say they're Christians. And the presumption behind these voices that are speaking out is that you need to believe the fact that I can say things in the name of Jesus because I claim to be a Christian. We see it on Facebook. My wife sees it on Facebook all the time. But being a Christian because you say you're a Christian has never actually been the biblical perspective. Not in this politics of identity sense that we have today. The perspective of Scripture has always placed the priority on truth, right doctrine, right living as defining the true Christian and the true Christian voice. Now, why is that important? Well, because of things that were already happening within the early church. Uh, False Christians had begun to infiltrate the church even during the time of the apostles. Uh, Listen to Paul's warning, again to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning to verse 12. Paul says this, What I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. In other words, Paul is talking about people who were claiming to speak on behalf of Christ just like he was. And then he goes on to say, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, describing themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Now, Paul is declaring there that people who call themselves are Christians, actually in the very things they do, the very things they say, are serving Satan. They are deceitful workers disguised as servants of righteousness, disguised under the name Jesus, but nevertheless doing works that are in fact contrary to the message of the gospel. Now, going back to the text in Mark, if we look at verse 42, we see that Jesus himself actually draws a very hard line on the judgment of charity. Verse 42, Jesus says this, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, almost all commentators can basically imagine the scene that Jesus is still holding that child that he was holding in the earlier verses, talking about serving the least of the kingdom, and that the child is a kind of a living parable that represents both the vulnerability of children, but also the vulnerability of those who are still yet babes or young in Christ. And essentially Jesus is saying that that those who would teach, those who would endorse, those who would advocate ideas, which are ultimately condemned by Scripture, those who would teach such things, they're the ones who are going to lead Young believers astray. They're the ones who are going to lead young believers into sin, and he condemns them in the harshest kind of way he can condemn them by saying it would be far better for them to have had a huge millstone tied around their necks and for them to be thrown into the very depths of the sea than to actually lead a young Christian astray and into sin. Jesus draws a very hard line. Ministry, preaching, speaking in the name of Jesus, it had best be such that would never, ever lead a young believer astray. Paul echoes the same concern in his first letter to the Corinthians, in terms of drawing boundary lines, he said this, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a reviler, a drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders Is it not those inside the church that we are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And then a few verses later, Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul draws the line. Paul sets the limits of the judgment of charity. If someone names the name of Jesus but lives a life that is condemned by the word of God or teaches and endorses what is condemned by the word of God, they are false messengers doing the work of Satan. They are not for Christ. They are antichrist. These lessons are lessons that the disciples didn't get at this time. It was really post-Pentecost before all the lessons that Christ taught them began to fully make sense. As the Spirit of God had baptized them on the day of Pentecost, illuminated their hearts and minds in such a powerful way that they could remember and recall all the things which Jesus had taught and then began to put them into place so that they could guide and guard the church. Was it important for them to be charitable toward toward uh, those who weren't necessarily part of their group? Well, sure. Uh, When Priscilla and Aquila uh, come to Ephesus in Acts chapter 18, they find this guy Apollos. And Apollos had never been part of the the apostolic ministry to that point, but he was teaching so many things accurately. And so so they recognized that his teaching of Jesus was, was in accord with the gospel message. They took him aside, they instructed him, they trained him further. And you think about the, big, the Great Reformation, at the time of the Reformation, Luther and then, then, then the other original reformers and the second-generation reformers, guess who they came encounter with? They, they encountered the Waldensians, who had, back in the 12th century, already articulated the same convictions of the Reformation. And then they encountered those who were followers of Wycliffe in England, who were already following the principles of the Reformation. And then in Bohemia, Czechoslovakia, they found those who were Hussites, who were followers of of those ideals that were already part of the the Reformation. And and they recognized, though they weren't part of the central they recognized these men naming the name of Christ are part of us. Because not only did they name the name of Christ in sincerity and authenticity, but they taught, ultimately, what is most necessary. They taught that the true gospel will always bring about gospel living. They taught the true message that exalts Christ as the second person of the Trinity, God incarnate, who came down into this world so that his life before God, his death upon the cross, would provide the perfect righteousness that would cancel all sin and fulfill the law in such a way that received by faith, this would be a perfect reconciliation with the Father. They understood the message that the gospel calls us to repent and it calls us to be reconciled by faith to God through Christ. And that the gospel message calls us to live faithfully for the Lord Jesus and to bear the fruit of righteousness in our lives. So spiritual leadership, discernment, guarding and guiding the people of God so that we would be as Christians charitable to all of those who are living godly lives and naming the name of Jesus because he's the only hope ever for sinners to be reconciled to God. Let's pray. Father, we would, we would be taught by your spirit. Either we're alive or we're dead. Either we're saved or we're lost. Either we're Christ, we belong to Christ, or we perish. And we pray that we who have received the Lord Jesus Christ, who know His life working in us, who know His death for us, that we would be faithful messengers, that we wouldn't compromise with the world, we wouldn't compromise our message, that we would want to proclaim a Savior, who has all power to save us out of the world, to translate us into his kingdom, to create in us new life, to give us everlasting life, and then enable us to live humbly in such a way that others might see Jesus in us. Oh Lord, we pray for this. Enable us to be your people in every way. In Christ's name, amen.